And I think also it's that particular practitioner, the, the confident one, who I think becomes more and more formulaic in their diagnosis and treatment. And when the patients aren't getting better, don't follow Bob Dylan's maxim that they need to forgive the patient. I think very often uh, this not going well. And I'm sure it's not my fault. It must be because I know I'm really good at what I do. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. When you're doing creative work, there's never the perfect moment to present it. It's untested, untried, previously unseen. You never know just how it's going to be received. And when pushing beyond the comfort of the known into territory that's new and original, you're going to have to tolerate the anxiety that goes with ambiguity and uncertainty. It's part of the terrain. It requires a strength of character, a sort of cultivation that allows you to lean on the uncertainty as a kind of nourishment. It helps to use the anxiety as a fuel to stay focused on what's important, even if you don't yet know how things are going to come to fruition. We live in between the grindstones of heaven and earth, in between the unlimited potential of heaven and the hardwired entanglements of earth. We are that conduit in the universe that breathes in the inspiration of heaven and exhales manifestation into the world of restriction and limitation. You can try living through ideology, but that will show you the limits of your thinking. It's not possible to cram the unpredictable potential of creation into the limited cognitive model of human thought. You can try forcing the world into your checklist of right and wrong, but the world will show you a kind of natural order that's unfettered by human thought. The Suwen says, Yang Hua Qi, In Cheng Xing, Yang transforms Qi. Yin completes the form. Yang, through the spark of inspiration, it sets things in motion, which, in turn, becomes form in this manifest world. Our human egos have a stake in the game, and what's more, we should. Ego is that within us that helps us to know our domain and our sphere of influence. It has a part to play. It's not evil, just limited. And it's a necessary part of manifesting the potential of heaven within the constrictions and the limits of earth. Limits are frustrating, but they are also the essential building blocks of anything that you want to create here. Time and space are the ground of being here, the limits in which we have an opportunity, an opportunity to create and perhaps and leave something of value in the brief moment we appear here in this vast river of becoming. Heaven and earth, it's such a lovely phrase, but Keep in mind that while the potential of heaven is unlimited, you'll find it difficult to get a decent cheeseburger there. That requires our brutal and beautiful world of form and all the wonder and the tragedy that leads up to this particular moment, which is always inviting us into a conversation with the unknown and the wonder of this emerging world. Today we sit down for a conversation with a longtime practitioner, Peter Moll, and Noodle on practitioner development. For me, these kinds of conversations are like drinking tea that's been steeped in an old pot that has the stain and the fragrance of leaves that are long soaked in the transformative heat. I always enjoy the conversations with longtime practitioners because it so often winds around, not to what you do in clinic, but more about how you approach your work. 
These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you're helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. 
I want to let you all know that I so appreciate all you listening out there. If you find the podcast in the perspectives of the guests here on the show to be helpful, please be sure to tell your friends. Peter Mole, welcome to Geological. Thank you very much for inviting me. Happy to have you here. So you have been doing acupuncture for a couple of few years now. How long have you been at this? Nearly 43 years I've been practicing, and I was training for a couple of years before that. That just seems like an extraordinary long amount of time for a Westerner to be doing Chinese medicine. Whatever coaxed you into it? I think I just got interested in different styles of medicine. Because back in the 70s, there was no real concept that I knew about that there were different styles of medicine. But I lived in India for a time, and in India they do have different systems of medicine. Tibetan, Ayurvedic, homeopathy is big in, in India. Uh, so I just got interested in different systems of medicine, really. and I started reading books about them, but never really crossed my mind that I was ever going to end up being a practitioner of one of them. And then I came back to the West and thought I'd better get my life together and stop hanging out in India. And just by chance, really, just by chance, met somebody who said they'd found this fantastic acupuncture teacher. And I went along and my life changed that day, really. That's incredible. I, I remember talking to a guest on the show some time ago who got himself into Chinese medicine. He was in a restaurant and he was overhearing a conversation at a table next to him. And, and one of the women at the table was saying, I'm going to acupuncture school. And he just decided, yes, that's what I'm going to do as well. <laughs> right. Yes, generally, I'm, I'm the dean of a college, and I do a lot of the interviews for the applicants. We certainly like our applicants to have had acupuncture themselves rather more than just heard about it in a restaurant somewhere. I think it's the difference between thinking that practicing acupuncture might be a good idea and having had the experience of having had acupuncture and really felt the benefits of it. I think that really makes the person more grounded in, in the study, I think. I would agree. I, the way that I came to it was because I had been getting treatments. Um, I had no interest in medicine whatsoever, really. But I've been getting acupuncture treatments, and they had been changing things in dramatic ways. I just started using acupuncture as my go-to healthcare. And then over time, slowly over time, I got curious about it, which eventually led me down the path. It's, so it, yeah, all of us come to it in different ways. So you're in a school, you, you interview people at the beginning of their career. What, what kinds of things, besides that they've had experience, what are you looking for in someone that lets you think maybe they have the right raw material for this because there's so much not just that you have to learn intellectually but there's so much that we have to change in ourselves sort of psychoemotively i think to become a practitioner i, I think this you know the, the subject of this talk was partly about the inner development of the practitioner in our college we're not interested in just producing good technicians what we're looking for is people who really have the qualities and have the artistry to become fine practitioners and i think you've really got to have a deep curiosity about human beings i think if you don't have a deep curiosity about what makes human beings tick i think you've possibly mistaken your profession so i think i i want to see that the person is essentially what you might loosely call a people person and they've got a genuine passion and excitement to be doing the work and also that it's the right time for them. 
you know, we looked a lot as to why some students drop out from the college. And very often it's not because they don't want to become acupuncturists. It's very often because some practicality wasn't right for them in some way. Maybe they hadn't sorted out their childcare or finances or some, some issue like that. So I think the person's got to be, in the, as much as you can tell, it's the right time and place for them to be studying at that time. And they've got to show some passion and some heart for the work, I think, in the interview. I remember being interviewed to go to an acupuncture school and, and I interviewed at several different schools in Seattle at that time. And on the way out of the interview, the interviewer calls me back and says, you do realize, of course, you're going to be working with sick people. And I thought, what a ridiculous question. But evidently it was not a ridiculous question because I suspect in their experience, they had seen people come in, they had an idea of what they might be getting into, but they actually had no idea what they were getting into. I think that's true. I think that's true. You know, I think we see a very wide range of people. People come to us for preventive treatment and for general to kind of maintain their health and generally to promote their health. And also we see some very ill people. And I think in, to be a physician, I think one has to be prepared to take on board some responsibility for the fact that someone's patients are going to be very seriously ill. Someone's patients over a period of time are going to die. That doesn't necessarily make make it a failure on the part of the practitioner. That's just in the natural order of things. But I think that one sometimes has to harden oneself against that. You know, quite early on in my practice, I remember a patient of mine, his mother had committed suicide. Then during the time I was treating him, his brother committed suicide and, and probably, he probably went off and committed suicide too. And that was a terrible shock for me that very early on in my practice to have a patient commit suicide. To be a physician, one has to be prepared to accept some of those things happening at, at times. I just heard you use the word, a person has to harden themselves a bit. You know, of course, we want to be open and, you know, as available to our patients as possible. But hearing that word harden makes a lot of sense to me, or, or I can think of it almost like a, a kind of a tempering, like you do with a, you know, really good steel, like, like Japanese swords and stuff. It's by being heaten up and quenched and beaten with a hammer that that kind of steel gets a liveliness to it. And I think it's probably true as well that for us as practitioners, there are many, many difficult things that are going to come our way. And it's really part of the process of growing into a practitioner. What would you say it takes or what are some experiences that you've had that you've had this kind of thing and and how you get through it. When things are going pretty well and, and like you say, patients are coming for their health and we're kind of having a good time with them, it's one thing. But when people get sick or, or like in your case, someone commits suicide or we do treatments for people and it's just not working, there are many difficulties that we run into. I think in the course of a day, in the course of a morning or an afternoon sometimes, you can get very upset at times by a patient not thriving, feeling that one's not doing the, the best that one could possibly do and the one's essentially failing. But the next patient's lined up a few minutes later. And the fact that one's still struggling in oneself a little bit, one still has to, to rally and be there for the next patient as well as one possibly can. You said about how does one do that? I don't think there's any kind of formulaic way in which one learns to do that. I think that with experience, one realizes that there's times to be very soft with patients and there's also times when one needs to slightly harden oneself up. But I think, I think both those two qualities are essential. I think there's times to be soft and compassionate for sure. But there's also times when one needs to protect oneself a little bit against getting too upset and one's own self-critical voices. Thinking about a, a teacher of mine in China 
who was usually, you know, quite compassionate. Well, I think he was always compassionate with his patients. But every now and then somebody would come in who was usually it was usually a younger person. I don't think I ever saw him do this with an older person. It was usually a younger person and they just did not have their life together. And they were complaining about this and complaining about that. And he would sometimes just like rail on them about, well, you got to stop doing this and you need to go that and go outside and get in the sunshine more often and be happy. (laughs) (laughs) And he just, he let him have it. I think one of the advantages of being an acupuncturist as opposed to being a psychotherapist, you know, I, I started training as a psychotherapist at one stage. But psychotherapists are much more bound by convention and things you can and can't say to your to your clients. I think one of the advantages of being an acupuncturist is fundamentally those rules don't really apply to us for better or for worse. And I think there's times when I can get quite firm with patients at times. For example, not so long ago, I, I said I, I declined to go on treating a certain patient if she was going to keep on looking at Google Doctor the whole time because she was just making yourself incredibly anxious and a little knowledge is a dangerous thing and certainly you can freak yourself out by looking at google for looking at symptoms you can end up with all sorts of bizarre illnesses which you just didn't remotely have and i just i read of the riot act and said if you want to go on being treated with me you're going to have to stop doing that we, you know we can't go on like this but uh, it's not every day one does that kind of thing i think compassion is the predominant quality in the in a practitioner i would agree with you though taking that firm hand especially with the internet I have a couple of patients this way as well. What's curious to me is is this one patient in particular that I'm thinking of. She's getting better. She's got asthma. It doesn't use the rescue inhaler as much as she used to. All right, all kinds of things are different. But she goes on to some chat group. Everyone's complaining about this and that. They're saying what drugs they're using. And nobody's really getting better. I think that's often the problem with the chat groups, those support groups. Uh, very often those support groups just end up depressing people because very often, uh, for example, you've seen this with some of the post-COVID patients I've been seeing recently. They go on these chat groups for other people who are suffering from symptoms after after the COVID and some of them, you know, they can't get out of bed and they they, they find it and it's been going on for months now. And so some of my patients who are not so ill have found them really depressing and it, it's it's not giving them support at all. It's, it's depressing them. I'm not saying that it never gives people support. I'm sure it does sometimes. But I think it can be very double-edged. I think it can too. And in these things, huh, this is interesting as we're having this conversation. They're called support groups, but... It seems to me that that a real support group is run by someone who knows how to facilitate people through change. And in these sort of self-led, self-formed support groups, they don't have that. In my experience, at least with this patient, people really can take themselves down a bad path because there's no one with any kind of expertise in facilitating a group like this to make sure that people aren't making themselves worse instead of helping them to get better. That's certainly been my experience. I remember some time ago, a patient of mine, she had the very early symptoms of multiple sclerosis, which can be a terrible illness, but can be not such a bad illness. And so she promptly went on the support groups, read up lots of people who are now in wheelchairs and couldn't do anything anymore, and it just profoundly depressed her and quite altered her relationship with the illness. One of the things that's really intrigued me in recent years has been there's the patient and the illness, the illness that they have, which is obviously distressing, but the person's relationship to the illness, I think, really interests me. And I think one of the things I've become increasingly focused upon sometimes is trying to bring about a change in the way in which the patient thinks about themselves and thinks about their illness, and particularly the tendency to catastrophize and to think that it's worse than it actually is. 
I'm sure you've seen this too. People come in, you say, you know, how are you doing? What's going on? And they give you a diagnosis. Well, you know, I have X, Y, Z. It's like, okay, um, but how are you? And how is that for you? Well, you know, I have this illness. And, and they'll really take it on as a piece of their identity in a very fundamental way. Because they've taken on that identity, it seems like it's harder to get at like who they are and how they are separate from that illness. I think that's very true. There's a very famous book written in the 60s in the United Kingdom, but basically for general practitioners, for doctors, called The Doctor, the Patient and the Illness. And it talks there about this kind of mutual collusion that goes on between the doctor and the patient, where the patient comes in reporting a number of symptoms or a, a symptom. The doctor gives it a label. And then after that, the person then, then forms part of the person's identity. I'm so-and-so and I've got chronic fatigue syndrome, or I'm so-and-so and I've got fibromyalgia or whatever it may be. And it becomes post kind of locked COVID. In, mm-hmm. Yeah, post-COVID. It becomes locked into the person's identity. And I think very often that the person's relationship to the illness they have, which is obviously not pleasant, is a crucial factor in the prognosis. I would agree. I want to move this back for a moment to uh, practitioner development. We could easily go down this rabbit hole of um, a patient identity. Actually, that would make for a great podcast, how, how people identify <laughs> right. with their illnesses. I do want to bring this back to practitioner development. But taking this idea that, that we're talking about of, of patients are a certain way, and as a practitioner, I run into difficulties with patients it's frustrating. Sometimes I even go from liking a patient to not liking a patient, not because the patient has changed, but because I'm just frustrated with how I'm being with that patient. There's something in me that needs to change. It seems to me that often in the course of growing into a practitioner, we run into these situations where we just don't quite know what to do, or we think we know what to do, or what we've done has worked up to a certain point, and then it doesn't work anymore. And we sort of run into these dead ends. I'm curious to get your thought on how we grow ourselves beyond the dead ends that that really are part of the natural course of development as we do this work. Well, I think Bob Dylan had something interesting to say on the topic of getting frustrated with one's patients. Because in his song, Open the Door, Homer, he says that when you're out there trying to heal the sick, then first of all, you must forgive them. And I think that I think some practitioners easily slip into the notion of being not sufficiently forgiving of their patients for their foibles and for their weaknesses, and perhaps not following the lifestyle advice that the practitioner thinks they ought to be following. They ought, the practitioner thinks they should be doing lots of qigong or not eating dairy food, whatever it may be, or reducing their alcohol intake. And the patient very often is unwilling to go along with that advice. And I think that that causes a lot of frustration in practitioners. I also know what you mean, that, that we, we start treatment and things seem to be going quite well and then it kind of hits a plateau. And I think that, for me, I think that often the, the mark, I think, of the, of the better practitioner very often isn't so much getting it right in the, in the first instance. I think it's finding a way through when they hit problems and hit difficulties and having sufficient flexibility to uh, change their treatment principles and find a new way to initiate a different kind of change in the patient. 
it's easy to do it when the going's easy, but what really separates an experienced practitioner is they know how to navigate when it when it's not easy. Very much so. Very much so. Certainly in our college, we spend a lot of focus on trying to teach practitioners that skill because like lots of things in life, where everything's going along hunky-dory. Everything's easy, isn't it? It's what to do when things are not going hunky-dory and how you think clearly in that, in, in that situation. You know, on, on the one hand, I'm interested in using intuition and, and artistry as a practitioner, but I think also one needs to think clearly. This isn't working for me. What's, what's going on here? What have I tried? What haven't I tried? Uh, and being quite analytical, I think, in that, in that situation is also required. It's funny how art and science are often seen as opposites in the world that we live in. I mean, especially like if you go to university, right? There's the science department, there's the art department. They couldn't be more separate. You know, I love hearing you say it takes a certain kind of artistry to do this work. It takes a kind of intuition. And and I would not disagree with that. I think intuition plays a role. And that brings up a question for me, which is how do you tell the difference between intuition and wishful thinking? on the part of the practitioner? I think that's a very good question. I think one of the problems we have with students is you say to them, so what's your diagnosis? And they'll say, come up with something and you say, well, why do you think that? They say, well, I just kind of thought it really. It just kind of seemed to me that's what it was, you know. I think that it's important that one is able to think clearly and one, one thinks analytically uh, to a certain extent. But, you know, I, I started my acupuncture, you know, I, I integrate the five element style with TCM and the five element style is particularly intuitive, very person focused style, often focusing upon the person's uh, emotional world and what's dysfunctional about the person's emotional world. And there's no objective criteria in that kind of diagnosis. So in that sense, intuition is, is, is definitely required. But it's certainly true that uh, I think it'd be a criticism of many of the five element practitioners is they do indulge in wishful thinking. They just get it in their head that somebody's uh, constitutional imbalance is in one particular element and they just get an E-day fix and they're not prepared to really test out that hypothesis. Hello everyone, Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Test out the hypothesis. I love hearing you say that. I was talking to somebody recently, I can't remember where, but it was recent. And, and we we're talking about acupuncture. We we're talking about the scientific method. And they said, well, you don't really need science to do acupuncture. And I thought, this is just me and my opinion, right? I'm thinking, that's not right. The scientific method is at the heart 
of what we do. I mean, Chinese medicine, it, you know, it's ancient, and yet it seems to me that it still embodies some very basic principles that we also use in the scientific method. We begin with observation. We get an idea about what's going on. We call that the diagnosis, but you could very easily call it a hypothesis. And recently, that's what I've been doing, is thinking of it as a hypothesis instead of a diagnosis. Because I think a hypothesis is more fluid than a diagnosis. A hypothesis is something you're looking to test and maybe even prove wrong. I mean, if you're really doing the scientific method, you're trying to prove yourself wrong. I think uh, Francis Bacon had an interesting quote on that. Fran the, the 17th century Francis Bacon, not, not the 20th century British painter Francis Bacon. It goes something like this. He says that if a man starts with certainty, he'll very often end up in doubt. But if a man's prepared to start in doubt, he'll very often end up in certainty. I like to encourage a degree of doubt in my, in my students, really, particularly on the five element diagnosis. It's a working hypothesis. You may think such and such, but is that, is that, does it really work? Does the patient get better if you follow the treatment principles that would logically follow from that diagnosis? So for me, especially in the very early treatments, my goal in a sense isn't to see symptomatic relief. My goal is to resolve any uncertainties I may have in my diagnosis. And some parts of the diagnosis are reasonably straightforward. You know perfectly clearly that there's lots of damp present or whatever it may be. But other parts you're not so sure about, but yet they're crucial. For me, particularly with the five element constitutional style, I very much encourage the students to be very logical and to test out the hypothesis and be prepared to start with doubt. I really like that, starting with doubt. And, and what it says to me as well is getting friendly with doubt. Absolutely. Because most of us, we like to think we know what we're doing, right? Our ego wants, wants us to think, oh, I know what I'm doing. I'm smart. I'm capable, all these things. And what I have found over time is if I think I know what I'm doing and I'm not open to the other information that brings the doubt, I will miss so much information because confirmation bias will very quickly creep in. The things I don't want to see, I won't see until they become very gross, you know, until it's very obvious that I'm going down the wrong track. Absolutely. I think the, the whole concept of confirmation bias, that one only sees what one thinks one's going to see or only hears what one thinks one's going to hear, I think is a, a big problem in the practice of medicine in general and Chinese medicine in particular, really. I think we have to guard against confirmation bias for very, very much so. I think so too. Again, I, I can remember early in my practice, I would really try to make the patients fit the theory so that I could feel good about what I was doing. And then as time went on, I began to realize that when I was really lost and I really was not sure what was going on with the patient, I would go back to my basic theory, or I would try to put a theory on the patient and I would realize, oh, when I'm really thinking theory and I'm not really paying attention to my patient, that's how I know I've completely lost the scent of the trail, so to speak. I think the common tendency, particularly for, for 
practitioners who are not so confident is that when things are not going so well, their tendency is they start to try and do more and more. They start to try and throw in more and more treatment principles. And that's like act of desperation. And I think when, for myself, when things aren't going so well with a patient, I try and work out, you know, I may have two or three treatment principles going. I try and say, well, which ones of these aren't working for me? And I'm inclined to reduce my treatment principles in that sense to try and gain clarity. Whereas I think what a lot of practitioners do is they increase the number of treatment principles and just do more and more points, trying to make something happen in some desperate shape or form. I think you're spot on with that, Peter. And I've had that experience myself. Whenever that thought goes through my head, oh, I'm going to do these couple of few points just to cover my bases. It means to me at, at, at this moment in time, whenever that thought goes through my head, it means I should absolutely not do those couple of points I should actually step back and do less. I, and I entirely agree. And I try, I try and instill that mentality in, in our students very much so. I've got a, a running joke with an acupuncturist friend of mine. You know the, the people who mostly don't trust acupuncture? Who's that? Other acupuncturists. <laughs> acupuncturists <laughs> mostly don't trust acupuncture, right? If we're thinking to ourselves, I should do these few extra things just to be sure it means we're not trusting it. It means we're not clear enough with ourselves. Well, I think we're often not trusting ourselves. It's an issue I grew up with a particular student I'm, who I'm supervising at the moment. You know, his self-critical voices are very strong, very strong. And I wish I could give him some intravenous shot of self-confidence because he's a good practitioner. He's very good with his hands and good with the patients and knows his you know, theory quite well. But those self-critical voices don't just come to him as an acupuncture practitioner. They extend into a much bigger area of his life. And it's funny because I, I do a lot of clinical supervision at the college. And so I have several students uh, under my care. And from my point of view, student A is not particularly better than student B. They may be better in certain respects, but overall they're no better. But student A thinks they're rather good. And student B is filled with self-doubt. Now, on the one hand, I think at least the, the student B who's filled with self-doubt, at least he's motivated to keep on trying to grow and change, whereas possibly student A is not so committed to, to growth and change. And certainly patients, they always like to feel that confidence in the practitioner. So I think that the confidence has certain strengths, but has certain weaknesses because the person is very often inclined to become more complacent and less, less committed to, to growth and development. My suspicion is that person A will probably get out of school, they'll get a practice going, and they'll probably do pretty well initially because of that confidence. Yes. Because people yes. are attracted to that. Yes. But they might get a little ways down the road, and that sort of strength of theirs will turn into a weakness. It's going to take some big blows to catch their attention that they're going to need to, to dig deeper. Yes. And I think also it's that particular practitioner, the, the confident one, who I think becomes more and more formulaic in their diagnosis and treatment. And when the patients aren't getting better, don't follow Bob Dylan's maxim that they need to forgive the patient. I think very often uh, it's not going well. And I'm sure it's not my fault. It must be because I know I'm really good at what I do. I'm good at what I do and I did the treatment I'm supposed to do. Exactly. So and the patient's not getting better. It must be something about the patient. They're not following my lifestyle advice or they're not 
really committed to getting well. They don't really want to get well. All these kind of things. And it's true that there are, you know, there is secondary gain in some patients. I think these are issues, but I think it's very easy for the practitioner to hide behind those kind of rationalizations. These days, I think to myself, when things don't go the way I expected, the little phrase that I use is, oh, you know, that was a really good idea I had, and it was proven wrong by reality. Very much so. Very much so. You know, back to the scientific method, we, we make a hypothesis, we make a diagnosis, and our treatment is a way of testing that hypothesis. Then we have to be open to what comes out of that. Very much so. One of the things I quite envy about Western medicine, I think, when, when it's practiced well, is that they'll run a series of diagnostic tests. Maybe they'll take some some blood tests or some x-rays or a scan or whatever it may be. And only when they ruled out a lot of possibilities, you know, a person's got a persistent cough. Well, it could be lung cancer, so we'll run an x-ray. No, okay, it's not lung cancer. So I think they can very often rule out possibilities before they commence treatment. Whereas I think one of the problems for us very often is that we have to test it through the treatment and response to treatment and just don't have that battery of diagnostic tests that we can do before we commence treatment. Well, this is one of the places where I think it's helpful to work with Western medicine because sometimes you do want people to have a good battery of tests to rule some things out. For sure. I had a patient recently who I'm pretty convinced is seriously anemic. I'm not in a position to run the blood test, but I think she sh- I, I recommend that she go and see her general practitioner and find out whether she's anemic or not. I certainly suspect that she is. She's seriously blood deficient, certainly, and I think probably anemic. Back in the 70s, when I first started practicing acupuncture, it was in this in the United Kingdom, it was more commonly called alternative medicine. And we, over time, we kind of changed that to complementary medicine really. I think that Western medicine has great strengths and the the role of Chinese medicine in the West is to complement Western medicine and to compensate for some of Western medicine's weaknesses. Um, But I think that we still have to honor Western medicine's great strengths. Absolutely. There are things that Western medicine does and does really well. Uh, There are other things they don't do so well, which is really good for us because it gives us a livelihood. (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's, that's one way of looking at it, isn't it? I think no, it's really, I think, I think it it's is. really, I think it's really good for the patients. The Chinese medicine has grown so rapidly uh, in the West and can compensate for some of Western medicine's weaknesses. Almost all the patients I see, they've consulted a Western medicine practitioner for their problem, but in some shape or form, the treatment they're getting from the Western medicine practitioner is not satisfying for them. I would say I've had the same experience over here. They usually come into my office after they've seen the Western doctor and often after they've seen some other, like a chiropractor or something else, you know, some other alternative complementary. I don't even know what word to use these days because the language seems to keep changing, but they eventually wind into our office usually because other things have not been helpful to them. Certainly. Certainly. Now I'm, I'm curious to know over there in, in Great Britain, How things are with this, um, I'm using air quotes here, the integrative medicine. Integrative medicine seems to be a big thing over here in the States these days. Some kind of combining of Chinese medicine and uh, and Western medicine. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. 
I think that's quite different in the United Kingdom to how it is in America. That phrase is not used very much over here. Are you talking about people being trained in both styles of medicine or are you talking about properly qualified Chinese medicine practitioners treating people alongside Western medicine? Or are you meaning some Western practitioners doing basic courses in acupuncture and doing some uh, rather poor quality acupuncture? Yeah, good good question. I was thinking more about qualified uh, Chinese medicine practitioners working in a Western clinical environment. Uh-huh. I, I think it may be slightly different because you know, in the United Kingdom, we have the National Health Service. Uh, we're always shocked by the American health system. I think possibly there are financial advantages, I think, for, the, for some of the hospitals in the United States to take on acupuncture because it's probably considerably cheaper as well than, than using trained MDs, you know, tra- trained medical practitioners. I think we're probably less advanced in the United States on, the, on that strand. Mm-hmm. So it's not happening so much over there. Well, I'm not sure how much is happening in America. People are working in hospitals or they're working in doctor's offices or where are they, where are they working? Some people are working in hospitals. There's a, it seems to me there's kind of an applauding of, of people here in the United States when they can get Chinese medicine into the hospital. It's like we're making you know, inroads into the system. Yeah. Yes, I think it happens a bit in the United Kingdom, but I think it's probably happening a good deal less. The National Health Service is a, is a wonderful system in many ways, but it's, it's, it's somewhat monolithic. And I think it's harder to bring about that, that kind of change in the United Kingdom, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Is acupuncture covered by your national health system? No, no, not at all. Not at all. In fact, there are just some changes. It was interesting. In, in the United Kingdom, there's something called NICE, which is it gives it's like the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, I think it is. And they basically define what are acceptable treatments for particular conditions in Western medicine. And so, for, for example, just the other day, in, in, for chronic pain, they decided that the use of painkillers, I'm not sure what you call them in America, but in England, uh, anti-inflammatories, mm-hmm. paracetamol and opioids perhaps, should no longer be used for chronic pain where there's no discernible medical diagnosis. And instead, doctors should be prescribing antidepressants, psychological therapies and acupuncture. And that's quite a, that's quite a major change. And just accepting that a lot of people with chronic pain, that essentially there's a, there's a strong psychosomatic component. I strongly recommend a book called It's All in Your Head by a woman called Suzanne Sullivan. She's a neurological consultant in a London hospital, and she's fascinating on the subject of psychosomatic medicine and describing how both pain and fatigue are the two most common psychosomatic symptoms and what a major problem that is for the National Health Service in this country. And I think that there's an increasing realisation of despite the great scientific advances of Western medicine in the late 20th century, that there are all sorts of patients where they're, they're not coping very well, and there is a very strong psychosomatic component. And I think there's going to be an increasing move towards uh, psychological therapies, and I think also acupuncture and Chinese medicine. Acupuncture is such a helpful thing for this. You know, earlier you, you were saying we're not psychotherapists, and so we don't have to, you know, work like psychotherapists where they you know, they, they, they basically don't tell people what to do. We get to tell people what to do. Can do. We can, if, if it's helpful. But so often people do come in with something and it's psycho-emotive in nature. I'm not saying that we do therapy with people. No. That said, often acupuncturists, because we ask more questions, we want to get at what is going on with this person. 
we will tend to spend more time with them. We will create a little bit deeper of a, a personal connection with our patients. But for me, the thing that I think is most interesting with acupuncture is the needles tend to work beneath conscious awareness. And so people can change dramatically in their psychoemotive makeup without us ever doing any kind of psychotherapy with them. Absolutely. I think it's one of its, its great strengths. One of the greatest gifts that Chinese medicine has for the West is that Western medicine, although it understands on one level that stress and psychological trauma and bereavement, all these kind of issues have a profound effect upon people's health. That Their understanding of the mechanisms by which different emotional states bring about change in a person's health is very, very limited. And I think that Chinese medicines, you know, it's steeped in the notion of the internal causes of disease and the fact that certain of the internal causes of disease bring about change in particular organs and particular elements. You know, anger affects the wood element and the liver and gallbladder, for example. And I think that uh, that kind of insight and the, the way in which we can then treat based upon uh, our understanding of the person's, what emotions the person's struggling with most of all, and being able to help them energetically, I think is a fantastic strength for Chinese medicine in the West. I've seen it work that way myself. And, and I'm constantly amazed at how well it works in that regard. And, and it's one of those things, too. You know, we were talking earlier about how, in particular, like with five-element thinking, this is, was, um, as it's been, uh, you know, handed down through the Worsley tradition, uh, sometimes people will they'll sort of subjectively get involved with it in a way that, that doesn't let them see what's going on for the patient. And yet... By the same token, I think we can take this kind of elemental thinking, especially for the internal environment, the emotions, and it really does give us a roadmap that helps us to understand that terrain. I started off in the five element style. I, I still really, really where my heart lies. I think there's quite a big cultural difference actually in the five element world between the United States and the United Kingdom. My impression is in the United States that the, the five element people coming out of the Worsley tradition, it's, they seem to be a lot more poetic, and a lot more what you might loosely call new agey than we are in the United Kingdom. I think we're a bit more kind of grounded in the emotional the emotional reality of the patients, I think, to a certain extent. And it has quite a different quality, I think, in the United Kingdom as in the States. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure it's, it's a bit of a generalization, but that's been my impression, looking at some of the books that have emerged out of that tradition in recent years. I hadn't thought about there being a difference between your side of the pond and our side of the pond with that particular tradition. I'm going to have to sit with that and look for it. Qualitatively, I think it's really quite different, actually. Yes, looking at, looking at the books coming out of America, they're, they're very much more kind of poetic and much, I think, slightly, um, not sure how, I'm not quite sure how to say that. So it's more poetic and more new age, I suppose, is, the, is what, what, what strikes me, really. I think in Britain, we're not, we're not, it's not so much like that, I think. The emotions are such a tricky thing to work with. Right. And I think psychotherapists know a lot about this because, you know, they've got ideas of transference, countertransference. You know, they, they know that when you start getting into that emotional realm, it, it can get pretty mucky pretty quickly because each of us as human beings, not just practitioners, but as human beings, bring who we are with our strengths, our fears, our weaknesses, our gifts, everything to the clinical encounter. 
we meet with people in that emotional realm and it can get murky so quickly. I'm not sure what you mean by murky. What do you mean by murky, Michael? Okay, good question. So let's say somebody has an issue that they're dealing with in terms of, I'll just pick an element, fear. And fear runs their life in a certain way. Now, if fear doesn't run our life in a in a similar way, we might be able to really help them because we don't get hooked by what's going on for them. But if their issues with fear tend to hook up with our issues with fear, and we haven't done any work around our fear in that way, I think it's easy to get murky because what's patient, what's practitioner, what's theirs, what's mine, you know, if we're triggered Triggered's not such a good word. I hate that word. It's it's way too overused these days, and it's got all kinds of connotations, at least here in America. Let, let me put it this way. When something's happening for our patients with fear, and we have a similar experience, something in us gets evoked. Certainly and now be. we're not so helpful as a practitioner, because we're in the middle of the muddle with them. I think I think it easily can go that way. I think with emotions which are somewhat difficult for ourselves, I think particularly around sadness, for example, I think you can see that very clearly around that, that when, it, when a patient becomes sad, maybe they're talking about the bereavement of someone they love or the breakup of a relationship. I think that the practitioner's own relationship with sadness hugely affects the way in which they respond to the patient. I think it can, uh, I shouldn't use the word trigger, uh, but it can evoke uh, very sad feelings in the practitioner. But I also think that for some practitioners that they're somewhat in denial uh, and sadness is not a feeling they, they're comfortable going anywhere near. And as soon as they see the patient or feel the patient becoming sad, some little internal voice says, oh, no, no, let, let's not go here. Let's not, let's not make anything unhappy. Let's keep everything happy and cheery around here. And so I think they very easily don't allow the the patient to express their sadness. So I think it can go, you can either be slightly in denial of that particular feeling state if you're somewhat in denial of it yourself, or if it's a particularly painful area for the practitioner, I think it can evoke that pain for the, for the practitioner themselves. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they're feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP certified facilities and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Yes, so this, this is yet another way that these things can become murky in a sense, because either we over identify with the patient through our own experience, or 
as you were just saying, there's something we don't want to get too close to. And so we can't let our patients get close to that either. Yes. And also, I think sometimes even miss the diagnosis, really. In the five element system, I think my weakest area actually is diagnosing people whose constitutional imbalance is in water. Because it's not to say that I never feel anxious. I can feel anxious. I can feel frightened. But it's not a very strong feeling for me, particularly. And I often don't really quite realize how anxious maybe the, the patient is. I, I, I don't see that so clearly as maybe somebody else might see. Whereas I'm, I'm very comfortable around feelings of, of sadness and sense of loss and grief. It's much easier for me to evoke those feelings in somebody and connect with those feelings with the patient. Whereas, particularly when patients are anxious about their health and I'm thinking why are you anxious about your health you basically you know you've got your pulses are quite good you've got reasonably good health you don't need to be so anxious I think that I I sometimes fail to be sufficiently empathic in that situation because I'm thinking this is not appropriate to be this anxious about your health and I'm not always sufficiently forgiving of their particular foible in, the, in that respect <laughs> we're back to forgiving our patients aren't we <laughs> yes yeah, so we are a bit Bob Dylan Bob Dylan said that. Bob Dylan did. And he was, and that was in the, the basement tapes, Open the Door Homer. So he's only, what, late 20s at the time. I think that's a statement of real wisdom. And he was not a practitioner himself. So quite how he knew you had to forgive your patients if you're out there trying to heal the sick, I know not. But he, he seemed to know that. You know, this this really does get back to that sense of artistry that you were talking about, that there are experiences in life you know it could be bob dylan's music it could be the i often go to the poetry of david white myself when things are difficult just because it it's somehow evocative and helpful there are so many things that touch on like a greater sense of what life is beyond you know health or illness beyond you know the the work techniques that we have to do yeah work and money that to be a well-rounded practitioner, it takes more than just like knowing the stuff, knowing the material. Um, you've been at this 40 plus years. What would you say are some of the things that have helped you sort of grow yourself into the kind of practitioner that you are today? I think on the one hand, there's no substitute for experience. I have seen thousands of patients and there's no substitute for experience. But I think actually the biggest changing experience for me was being a parent. I've had five children. And I think that the kind of selflessness that's required uh, to be a parent, I think grew me as a person. And that kind of care that one takes for one's and, and love that one has for one's children. I think it's not really so different in a sense. I'm not saying that I treat all my patients as though they were children. I'm not quite saying that. But I do think that it, I grew as a human being through parenthood personally and through loving relationships. I think that they, my heart grew through those experiences in a way that when I was a young single man, I don't think I had the, the same depth of compassion, really, and selflessness that being a parent, I think, helps to develop. That rings true. I, I listen to you say it. Well, I'm kind of a parent. I'm like a half-parent. Um, my wife's niece from China has been living with us for the past few years and going to school here, which uh, kind of gives me the position of, uh, you know, Uncle Daddy in a way. Step Stepfather, yes. 
Yeah, stepfather. And it's been exquisite, actually, to be in the presence of a human being who's unfolding themselves right before your very eyes. And patients unfold themselves as well right before our very eyes. Sometimes, suddenly. I, I think we have the opportunity for it. At least, I feel like in the work that I do, there's an invitation. And I had this before as well. An, an opportunity, an invitation for them to just be who they are. That's all I really ask of patients. You know, I just ask them, I just want them to come and be themselves to a certain extent, reveal who they are to me. Uh, I want them to tell me about their medical problems and their bowels and their appetite and their sleep and all those kind of issues. But I just want them to try and be authentic and try and be themselves in the room. And I think that that uh, enables a level of rapport to be established that's just not possible with some patients, really, who don't really have the experience or the wherewithal to be kind of fully authentic in themselves, I think. I would agree. And as we're having this conversation, I'm, I'm putting a couple things together. I, I also feel like when people have an authentic experience of themselves, because sometimes they don't. Lots of times we don't have authentic experiences of ourselves. We have opinions about ourselves. We have judgments about ourselves. We have overinflated aspects of ourselves. There's all kinds of relationships that we have with ourselves. And to have an authentic sense of like who you are beyond that, I think it can be quite healing. And I think about the Zheng Qi, right? We have this idea in Chinese medicine that there's something that's Zheng, there's something that's upright, there's something that's genuine, authentic. And if that Zheng Qi is strong, then the Xia Qi, the pathogenic, it, it's like it doesn't really have a place to come in because your boundaries are strong. It's like your core is strong. And it seems to me when people do touch more on that authentic sense of who they are, it's strengthening to their Zheng Qi. I think that's certainly true. I think that's certainly true. I think there's no substitute for having a good constitution in the first place, having a good strong Jingshan in, in, in the first place. But I think that uh, through one's own growth and development and through the cultivation of happiness. You know, I'm with uh, Henri Amiel, the French philosopher. You know, his, his line was that happiness is the basis of health. And um, I'm, I, I think that's, it's not, it's, not, it's not the only factor, obviously, but I think, I think it's a key factor. There's not much we can do about our genetic predispositions and our genetic constitution, but I think that one can be happy and grow in oneself. And I think that, I think that increases one's energy for sure. So I'm reading a book right now. Uh, it's written by a Jungian psychologist, James Hollis, who's been at this for a long time. Uh, my dad recommended the He actually sent me the book. He's like, I think you'll like this. It's cool that I got a dad that sends me books like this. Is that, is that the middle passage? Are you reading the middle passage? Uh, no, he's reading the middle passage, and I'm reading uh, Between Worlds. Oh, I haven't read that. But the middle passage is a fine book, I think. The thing right now with me and my dad is I'm reading the one, he's reading the other, we're going to change books, and then we're going to talk about it. So that, that's kind of a cool the, thing. The middle passage is about, about having a midlife crisis. I thought your, your dad's probably a little bit old for the middle passage, but anyway, oh, whatever. He's reading. Yeah, no, my dad's in his like mid-80s, but you know, he's, he's, just, he's just keen on this stuff. He's always been keen on this stuff. You know, when I was a kid, he was the one who always brought books in the house, and 
they were often about stuff like this. So, so my dad's a cool dude. Um, but one of the things that James Hollis talks about in the book that I'm reading is that happiness, while it's, it's helpful and it's useful, and it is absolutely worth having in your life, if you try to build a life based on happiness, you're building it on shifting sands because happiness comes and goes. He says the real meat, the place to put your, your attention and your growth is on creating meaning. That meaning will give you a much more solid foundation. Well, you know, Victor Frank, you ever really Victor Frankl? Who was a who was a Holocaust survivor? You know his his general gist is really it was it's the people who have meaning in their lives who survive traumatic experiences much better than people who don't have meaning in their lives. Uh, and that that search for meaning he regards as a as actually crucial to the growth of a human being really and the resilience of a human being against the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. I've seen this especially in my patients who have serious serious illness that if they have that meaning piece, it can really deepen them. The illness can deepen them. I think also, you know, we're living in a, in a time when, uh, where organized religion is held a much less strong hold upon many people than, than used to. But you can see that for many people, having a firm belief, having faith, gives their life great meaning. For those of us who, are, who, who don't have that faith, the, the sands are more shifting and it, it has to find meaning. Um, it's, you know, meaning is no longer handed to us on a plate in the way that it is if you accept the particular doctrine of a particular religion. And I think that uh, it's, in a sense, it's trickier for those of us who don't, who don't have that faith. But in some ways, like for many agnostic and atheists, it's, it seems enviable to, to have that faith and have that sense of you know, sincere belief in the, the, the meaning of life. Uh, if one's a committed Christian or whatever. Yeah, I hadn't, until we're having this conversation, really thought about the meaning that a person makes about their illness as being somehow something to include in the treatment process. I mean, as we're having this conversation, I'm, I'm thinking I, I've got something new to go into clinic with just to watch for, just to listen for with my patients. I think one of the worst problems, I think, of illness for many patients is the sense that they have no understanding of why it's happening to them and they feel powerless. This illness, you know, these night sweats or these headaches, they, they appear to come with, with no great, any great warning. I, I don't understand why I had a headache yesterday, I don't have a headache today. And I think that one of our jobs as really as a practitioner is to try and help the patient understand that these things aren't necessarily happening at random and there is some method in the madness and that maybe the reason why they had a headache yesterday may well have to do with what they ate or what their internal state was how stressed they were how uptight they were or whatever it may be and i think increasingly if people can gain some understanding of the causation of their illness and and what brings it on when it when it comes on i think the the relationship to the illness changes and the person feels a good deal less powerless it's kind of a paradoxical thing on one hand, people just want their problem to go away. They just want it to be gone. On the other hand, it seems to me, when something is dogging somebody, it's like there's this part of them that's asking for a kind of attention. And it's very, very loyal. And it's not going away because it's loyal to them. And it's like it has a message for them in some way. And it's not leaving until that message gets through. I think that's somewhat true. Somewhat true. 
I think what's difficult for people is finding out what that message is, or what, what, what they need to change themselves in order to bring about a change in their illness. For some people, it's dietary, and for some people, it's bringing about a change in their, their, in their emotional world, and no longer uh, being unhappy in the job that they're doing, or what, whatever it may be, or working so hard that they're stressed out all the time. Yeah, some of those things are tough to change, right? Changing jobs or, or, or changing attitudes. I mean, changing points of view is hard. Sure, very hard. It's very hard to persuade anybody to change. You know, you talk to a, um, a solid um, Trump supporter and you're not a Trump supporter yourself. You know, the notion you're going to chat to them for a bit and they're going to suddenly see the light and realize that Donald Trump's not all he might be. It's, it's not going to happen, is it? It's very hard to change people's attitudes, I think, through, through dialogue. But I think that we do have an advantage of having specialist knowledge and bringing their specialist knowledge to bear sometimes. And so we can say, well, I have reason to think that these particular foods, for example, because, because of your particular diagnosis, these particular foods are not good for you. We have specialist knowledge that the patient doesn't have. And I think sharing that can bring about a change in people's at least relationship to their food and sometimes the relationship to their attitudes. Yes. Well, and this is where we get back to things like looking at the interaction of the organs and looking at the interaction of the elements that we can sometimes see things, I'm going to say, that are happening physiologically, that our patients are having an emotional experience of or a psychological stance towards. And I've given up, long ago I gave up trying to reason people out of things that they were never reasoned into in the first place because it just doesn't work. But yet, yes, people have these certain psychological stances and sometimes because of the way that we see how things balance other things out or we see a deficiency in one place or an excess in another, we can work on these things in a very physiological way. And over time, people shift, and, and they'll shift in their psychological points of view without us doing any kind of psychological work. That's what excites me the most about Chinese medicine, really, the ability to bring about change in the person's internal world without, as you say, uh, appealing to their rational mind or using, using psychological therapies or using counseling whatever it may be, but seeing patients really change themselves and becoming particularly the qualities I often look for is to become more resilient and more robust. I think, you know, we're always going to have things that are going to upset us and uh, take a hit sometimes. It's a question of how strong is, how strong is our spirit in terms of, uh, you know, bouncing back from those kind of difficulties. And I think that acupuncture really has the ability to increase people's resilience and robustness. And I think those are key qualities. We're kind of back to the Zheng Qi here in a way, aren't we? In a way. I think building that up is one of the, one of the great gifts of Chinese medicine. Yeah. You know, this, this brings up a thought that I've had recently too. It seems to me that Chinese medicine innately trusts the body and mind and spirit, whereas Western medicine is the opposite. It kind of doesn't trust the body. It's like looking for, oh, this is wrong and this is broken. Whereas it seems we're often looking for, okay, there's something that's got an issue in a certain place, but the system as a whole is built to take care of its problems if it's working well. It's in, the body is innately trustworthy. 
Well, I think all acupuncture can do really is, you know, it's, a, it's a bit like with, a, with an automobile, as you call them in the States. I think all acupuncture can do really is tune up the functions that are, that are present within the person. We're not adding anything in, like a herbalist may well do, of course. I think you have to trust to the body's uh, and the mind's uh, homeostatic principles. It, it can come back to a position of health with, with, with some balancing. I think that's a, it's a fundamentally different attitude to Western medicine, for sure. I absolutely agree. I will often have patients ask me after a treatment that that has been particularly helpful. You come into the room, the room already feels different. You take the needles out, they open their eyes and it, you know, and their eyes look completely different. And sometimes patients will say to me, "Wow. What did you put on those needles?" It's like, "I didn't put anything on those needles. Those are just they're just needles." And they're like, "What happened?" It's like, "Well, this experience that you just had is you. You just had an experience of something else that's you. Acupuncture only can bring out what's already within you. Maybe you just didn't know you had it. And they're often surprised by that. In fact, truth be told, I'm often surprised at it too. I think every time it happens, there's, there's a part of me that stands you know, at the side of the table and, and is just a little bit amazed. Not, not that, it, that it's possible, because I've seen it happen so many times, but that when, when things are freed up that way, people have internal resources that really are quite vast. I find seeing those kind of changes in patients some of the most kind of awe-inspiring moments of my life really there's times where i find it hard not to not to have tears in my eyes really sometimes seeing the change bring you about in the person and as you say it was always latent within them anyway but seeing them come more into themselves and and grow as it were in, the, in that that way in themselves i find that truly truly magical really and i think that one can't always do that um you know, day in and day out, patient in and patient out. But when it happens, I find it truly touching. And I've always thought that uh, if I ever stop finding that really awe-inspiring, it no longer touches me, then that'll be the time I should be retiring. I think, you know, then maybe, then maybe I've done it for, done it for long enough because something's, something's not right anymore. But I'm glad to say I'm not remotely in that place at the moment anyway. No, and you've been doing it 43 years. Yes. Do you have any thoughts about retirement or what, what things might look like toward the end of uh, an acupuncture career? or later stage of an acupuncture career? I'm working less than I used to these days. I'm only really seeing patients two days a week these days because I still teach quite a lot and I'm still the dean of the college. But I think one of the great strengths of acupuncture is as long as one's fairly sound in body and mind, uh, one can still practice into one's dotage. Uh, my colleague John Hicks, for example, you know, he's still seeing patients in his early 80s and, and treating them very well. I think that I might not see quite so many patients in a day as I used to. I might take things a little bit easier as I, as I get older. But uh, I imagine keeping working as long as I possibly can, as long as I think I'm still doing good work. It seems a shame to have reached a certain level of competence and experience and then um, you know, spend my time taking up the kind of activities going, I've got no interest in playing golf, for example, if you know what I mean. I'd much rather, I'd much rather see patients and try and help some sick people, frankly, than improve my putting, you know. Well, it seems that musical instruments, after they've been played for years they gain their own kind of voice. They gain, they gain a richer sound yep. because they're being played. Seemingly. It would be a shame not to keep playing that instrument after it's been seasoned. 
That's pretty much my view, I must say. Mm. There is an adage about that one should avoid uh, it was, I can't remember who said it now, but someone said you should avoid an old physician. You should always see young physicians before they come down with nonsense. I'm always a bit on the lookout in case I get too rigid and dogmatic and come down with nonsense, as, as the person said. But I, th- I think I've got no great worries about that at the moment <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time today. This has been an enjoyable exploration of the work that we do and the development that it invites us into. It's been a real pleasure, Michael. Real pleasure. Thank you very much. It's helpful to remember that what gets us started is not what keeps us sustained, and it's not what helps us to finish, be that a project, a practice, or any worthwhile life journey. The road we take shapes us as much as our decisions to follow a particular path. It helps to have something that we can put our hearts into. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm